0: Bow together in prayer before we begin. Our Father, we pray that you would guide us in truth and understanding in your word. It is the desire of our hearts to know you, our great God and Savior, greater and more deeply and more profoundly than we do now, that you would guide us in truth that we may be drawn into understanding you, who you are and what you have done for us. We want to know you as our strength and our song, and we pray that we would be able to appropriate and apply the praises and exaltations of this psalm in our own lives, And that we might know you as deeply as the psalmist does, and did. We pray that you would send your Spirit to be our guide in this and to our teacher. That you would be glorified in and through your church and to the glory of our Savior. In whose name we pray, Amen. All right, Psalm 118. uh, That is the psalm that we uh, began with this morning, or or read this morning. And I was surprised at how many of the songs that we sang for our worship uh, took phrases and words right out of this psalm. This is the day that the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. Enter into his gates with thanksgiving. Uh, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. All of those, it was almost like somebody planned that. Uh, all of those songs kind of came uh, come out of the the wording of Psalm 118. And so we're going to be looking at Psalm 118 this morning. And you'll notice that I didn't ask you to turn to the Gospel of John in the 12th chapter because uh, we're going to be studying this psalm. And this psalm, because John chapter 12 actually refers to this psalm as these as some of the words from this psalm find their way off of the lips of those who were in the crowd and chanting the praises and the hosannas of the Lord Jesus Christ when he rode into Jerusalem so we're d- are drawing our attention to psalm 118 so that we can kind of take a look at the entire psalm and get a appreciation for the passion behind this and any good bible student when you when you're in the new testament and you read a quotation from an old testament passage you always have to ask yourself What was? Why did this writer quote that passage? What was going on in that original passage? And that's what we want to take a few moments. We're going to take the whole time. We're going to take our whole time today to look at what was going on in Psalm 118. And why is it? Why is it that the crowd, out of all of the passages that they could have quoted concerning Jesus Christ, why did they choose Psalm 118? They could have quoted from any of the prophets. They could have quoted from a number of psalms. They could have quoted from large passages of the Old Testament which predicted this coming king. Why Psalm 118? What was special about that? And all four gospel writers quote the words of this psalm off of the lips of the people who were there singing. So all four of the gospel writers see this psalm as significant and saw what the crowd was doing as a fulfillment of this psalm. So we're going to take the entire psalm today. We're going to do it in kind of an overview fashion. And since there's not much going on this afternoon, we may even do like a Puritan service and go until three or four in the afternoon. And just remember, it's only idolatry when your team is not playing. So Psalm 118, we're going to kind of go through, work our way through the entire psalm. And before we begin, I want to give you a little bit of background of the psalm itself. You will notice that the psalm does not list an author. In fact, there's nowhere in the psalm that the, the author identifies himself. Uh, before many of the psalms, like for instance, before, so right before Psalm 110, it begins a psalm of David. There's no authorial indication anywhere in this psalm, neither do they indicate neither does the author indicate what was going on at the time that he wrote the psalm. Sometimes you will see David, for instance, when he's writing a psalm, say uh, this happened when Saul was chasing uh David, and David was under distress and he was hiding in the caves and or this happened after Nathan uh confronted David with his adultery with Bathsheba. They will sometimes indicate the occasion of the psalm or even the type of psalm that it is, or the author of the psalm. There's nothing with that with Psalm 118. Though Psalm 118 is largely believed to be a psalm of David, and here's why. There are a number of parallels between the the events described, or at least the, the situation described in Psalm 118, and the life of David. If you're familiar with the life of David, you could read through this psalm, and you could come up with a number, dozens of occasions when this psalm could have been written. Because there are all kinds of parallels between what's described in this psalm, and incidences in the life of David. Now it's true that a number of people could have experienced things just like what are described in Psalm 118, but we know that those things were experienced by David. And because Jesus Christ is referred to as the Son of David, and because many things in this psalm find their fulfillment in Jesus Christ, most people believe, or many people believe, that it was David who wrote this psalm. Uh, It's also... It's also worth noting that it is possible that somebody who was not David was writing this psalm, but was writing the psalm about David and about what God did in David's life as an encouragement to the people who would be reading this psalm. Uh, both Charles Spurgeon and John Calvin believe David to be the author of the psalm. Second thing to note is this, this psalm, Psalm 118, is part of a collection of psalms known as the Hallel songs. H-A-L-L-E-L, the Hallel songs, particularly the what is called the Egyptian Hallel songs, Psalms. The Hallel Psalms were Psalm 113 through 118. And it was sort of a collection of songs that they would sing together during their Passover Seder. And the Talmud mentions that this group of songs, psalms was also sung during the Feast of Tabernacles. And that is because that this collection, Psalm 113 to 118, has a lot of references to the Exodus and the Passover celebration itself. And without reading Psalm 113 through 118, I just want to draw your attention to a couple of things in the context. Look at Psalm 113, look at verse 4. This is the way the Hallel Psalms begin. 113 verse 4, The Lord is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. That sort of sets the tone for this collection of Psalms. Look at Psalm 114. The theme of that is evident from the very first verse. When Israel went forth from Egypt, the house of Jacob from a people of strange language Judah became his sanctuary Israel his dominion the sea looked and fled the jordan turned back the mountains skipped like rams the hills like lambs what ails you o see that you flee or jordan that you turn back so that is referring to not only god's uh, deliverance of the people from the land of egypt under their bondage but also to god's preservation of his people in the wilderness and then ultimately to God bringing them through the Jordan River into the land of promise. So that psalm is all about the fulfillment of God's promises to His people. And then you look at Psalm 115, which is contrasting the Lord, who is the true God, with all of the idols of the people. Egypt was filled with idols. And so Psalm 115 is a contrast of the true God with the idols of Egypt and the idols of the nations. Psalm 115, verse 3, But our God is in the heavens and does whatever He pleases. And then there is this mockery of not only idols, but idol worshipers, verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have ears, but they cannot hear. They have noses, but they cannot smell. They have hands, but they cannot feel. They have feet, but they cannot walk. They cannot make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in the Lord. And you see the contrast between the idols of the peoples and the one true God. So all of these Psalms, and then Psalm 116 talks about personal deliverances. And Psalm 118 sort of crowns this whole group of Hallel psalms. Psalm 118 is the crowning psalm of this group because Psalm 118 describes the distress of of an individual, God's deliverance, and what individuals learn through suffering and affliction, and then how God has been good to His people. And then most of the Jews foresaw or saw in Psalm 118 a reference to God being gracious to the people By seating David on the throne of Israel and making a covenant with David and being gracious to David. And then the Jews looked forward to one who would come and be the ultimate fulfillment of all that was in Psalm 118. The ultimate fulfillment of that would come in the one who would be blessed. Blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They were looking forward to one, not David, but one after David who would fulfill all of these blessings and be the ultimate fulfillment of Psalm 118. All right, so that's a bit of an introduction to the Psalms. One last thing. Oh, no, two last things. Psalm 118 is one of the most quoted psalms in all of the New Testament. One of the most quoted ones. I think Psalm 110 is the most quoted psalm in all of the New Testament. Psalm 118 is right up there. You will notice if you just flip over, well, I don't know if you have to flip over in your Bible, but I do, to verse 25. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. That is the passage. Those two verses are, are quoted in part or in full by the various gospel writers in the New Testament um when Jesus came into Jerusalem on the back of the donkey. So that is quoted four times in the New Testament, by once by all four of the gospel writers. But you will notice that verse 22 has a familiar ring to it as well. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. Now that's familiar because that is quoted in all three of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And that is quoted by Jesus after his triumphal entry. It is quoted by Jesus to the religious leaders in Jerusalem during Passover week. So he is quoting from one of the psalms that is sung during Passover week. Every morning in the temple they would be singing this. And Jesus confronted the religious leaders in Jerusalem and he tells them, You are the builders and I am God's choice stone and you have rejected me. And he reproves them for their unbelief and their rejection of him. So three times this verse is quoted by Jesus, Matthew, Mark and Luke. And then Peter quotes it in Acts chapter 4, verse 11, when he says to the religious leaders, The stone which was rejected by you, the builders, this has become the chief cornerstone. And then Peter goes on to say, There is no other name given among men whereby we must be saved other than Jesus Christ. That's Acts chapter 4. And then Peter quotes this psalm again in his epistle, 1 Peter chapter 2, when in describing our relationship to this cornerstone, listen to what Peter says. For this is contained in Scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, now he's quoting, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumbled because they were disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. So it's quoted there in 1 Peter chapter 2. And then it may be alluded to in Ephesians 2 verse 20 by Paul when he says that the church is built upon the foundations of uh, of the apostles and Jesus Christ being the cornerstone. It may be that Paul has this psalm in mind. That means that Psalm 118 is quoted. Nine, if you count Paul's reference, possible allusion to it, ten times in the New Testament. One of the most quoted psalms in the New Testament. Clearly, Jesus and the apostles saw this psalm as being uniquely messianic And Jesus Christ as being the ultimate fulfillment of many, if not most, of the things that are written about in this psalm. Now, one last thing. This also happens to have been Martin Luther's favorite psalm. In his translation of the Psalter in Psalm 118, he uh, dedicated the translation of that psalm into German to Abbot Frederick of Nuremberg. And in the introduction to and the dedication to this psalm, here's what Luther wrote. Luther said, this is my psalm, my chosen psalm. I love them all. I love all Holy Scripture, which is my consolation in my life. But this psalm is nearest my heart, and I have a peculiar right to call it mine. It has saved me from many a pressing danger, from which neither emperor nor kings nor sages nor saints could have saved me. It is my friend, dearest to me than all the honors and powers of the earth." End quote. Now why did Luther find this psalm to be his psalm? Why was this psalm nearest and dearest to Luther's heart? Martin Luther was a man who knew what it meant to experience some of the same things that are experienced by this psalm writer. Maybe it was David, maybe it was somebody else, but this psalm writer knew what it meant to be surrounded, to be hedged in, to be attacked, to be hunted, to be hated, to be reviled, and to be hated by the world. This psalmist knew that, and so did Martin Luther. Martin Luther was a hunted and hated man for his stand against Roman Catholicism and the Catholic Church, and uh, he, he, they had, there was a death sentence on Martin Luther a n- number of times in his life. Luther received tremendous solace from the words of this psalm. He saw in the words of this psalm some of the very things that not only did he experience, but some of the very things that he learned through his affliction are given voice to in this psalm. Now, with all of that background, let's begin at verse 4. This is going to take us through the Super Bowl if we keep up this rate. Beginning with the first four verses. Verse 1 Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let Israel say his loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let the house of Aaron say His loving kindness is everlasting. Oh, let those who fear the Lord say His loving kindness is everlasting. I want you to turn and just look at the very last verse of this psalm, Psalm 118. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His lovingkindness is everlasting. The very first verse, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His lovingkindness is everlasting. You'll notice that the psalm begins and ends with the same wording, the same note. This was not an uncommon thing for the psalm writers to do. You find it many times in the psalms where they will begin a psalm and end a psalm with the same note. And it was their way of sort of stating the truth that they're trying to communicate at the very beginning. God is good, and His loving kindness is everlasting. Now the rest of the psalm goes on to elicit our praise and to express all the ways in which that is true. And then the psalm writer ends the psalm by saying, God is good, and His loving kindness is everlasting. And the psalmist wants us to begin and end on that note. And everything in between is meant to be sandwiched between those two powerful and dynamic proclamations. That God is good and His loving kindness is everlasting. But the psalmist does not contend for himself just to say that God is good and His loving kindness is everlasting. The psalmist wants everybody to say it. Let, all the, nation, let the nation of Israel say the, the Lord is good and His loving kindness is everlasting. Let the sons of Aaron say this. Let all the righteous say this. You know what the psalmist realizes? That when your heart is overcome by gratitude and thankfulness to God, when you are, when you are overwhelmed with the grace of God, the love of God, and you recognize how good He is and how loving kind He is, and that His loving kindness is everlasting, you're not content just to say it yourself, you want everybody to say it. In fact, you want everybody to join you in praising God. And that's what the psalmist is doing. Let everybody say this. All the righteous, the nation of Israel, the sons of Aaron. Everybody join me in saying that this is true of God and that He is good and that His loving kindness is everlasting. When you are overwhelmed with God's grace and love for Him, you want everybody to join you in song. You're not content to just do it yourself. Spurgeon said that grateful hearts are greedy of men's tongues and would monopolize them all for God's glory. Grateful hearts are greedy of men's tongues. Not only do we want to say that God is good, we want to hear everybody else say it as well. Because it's not enough just for us to say it. And so the psalmist is listening all of that praise from other people as well. Say that God is good and say that His loving kindness is everlasting. And he begins by that and he ends with that. And it's, it is not, it, and it's not that the psalmist just knows that God does good. I want you to notice the foundation of the praise. It is that God is good. Do you understand the difference between praising God because He does good and praising God because He is good? There's a profound difference between those two things. It is right for us and appropriate for us to recognize the blessing of God, whether it be financial prosperity or spiritual blessings or the good things that He does, the things that we experience each and every day that fill our hearts with affection for Him, to to experience His goodness. It is one thing to see Him do good and to praise Him for that. It's another thing, even when we don't necessarily feel like we are experiencing His goodness, to praise Him because He is good even if we don't feel at the moment as if we are experiencing His goodness. It is appropriate to praise God because He does good, but listen, the highest form of praise and the mark of spiritual maturity is to say with Job, even if He slay me, I will trust Him and I will praise Him. I will praise Him because He is good, not just because He does me good. If I praise God just because He does me good, that is a very me-centered praise, is it not? If that's the only reason I praise God... But when I praise God and I adore Him because He is good, I am adoring Him not for what He has done, but for who He is. And that is the that is the mark of spiritual maturity, to adore God, to love Him and to praise Him, not just because He does you good, but because He is in His nature good. And He is lovely and He is true and His loving kindness endures everlastingly. Now look at verse 5. From my distress, hold on a second, distress? I thought God was good and His loving kindness endured forever. How can the psalmist talk about distress? If God is good, does that mean that His people will never experience distress? No, mark this down. Whatever affliction you are going through or you will go through, because if you're not, you will unless you die this afternoon. Whatever affliction you are going through or you will go through, any distress that you have experienced, are experiencing, or will experience, is no indication whatsoever as to the depth or the reality of God's goodness and His loving kindness. There is no necessary connection between God allowing you to experience distress and the reality of His goodness and His loving kindness. And the psalmist knew this. God is good and His loving kindness endures forever in my distress. He's praising God for who He is, not for what He at the moment feels. In my distress, verse 5, I called upon the Lord and here is what the psalmist recognized. The Lord answered me and set me in a large place. I want you to catch the imagery here. It's a The contrast between a small place and a large place. Under distress, he felt like a man who was constrained and oppressed and pressed down and afflicted and and crushed from every side. You're going to see him describe this, this outward constrainment upon him being crushed from every side. It's a very vivid imagery. When the Lord heard him and answered him, he rescued him from that distress and brought him where? Not from the small place of being oppressed, but he says into a very large place. And the psalmist when he was delivered from the distress, felt like he had moved from a very small room into a very big room. He felt like he had been moved out from underneath of affliction, and now he was as free as a bird from all of that affliction. Because God eventually did hear his prayer and deliver him. And when the Lord did that, the psalmist was moved into a, a large place. No more constraints. No more affliction. No more outward distress. It was it was been completely removed by God's grace in response to his prayer. This is what the psalmist learned. This is you and I learn. You and I learn what it means to be alleviated from distress only by going through distress. If you never went through distress, you would never see the hand of God alleviate you from it, would you? And you would never know God's ability to do that, or the, grace that is, or the grace that is experienced in that unless you go through the affliction. You never know what it is like to see God deliver you from the affliction or to teach you the good things through affliction. And this is what the psalmist is recognizing. God brought me into a very large place. In some ways, this is, this is a picture of salvation for us. If you have been saved, then you have experienced this, at least spiritually speaking. You have come to understand what it meant to be shut up under the prison of God's law, under his wrath, and oppressed by sin, a slave to sin, into those shackles, and then to be, by regenerating work of God and the grace of God, to be completely liberated from that and brought out into an open place where you are free from the law, free from guilt, free from condemnation, free from God's wrath, and brought into an inheritance which is boundless. Everything in Christ is ours. He has given to his people Everything. We have been brought into this very large place. And the psalmist, the psalmist, when he experienced the distress and was alleviated of that distress, that is how he felt. Like, a, <sighs> I can breathe again. Pressure's off. I can breathe again. Now I am in a large place. Verse 7. Sorry, verse 6. The Lord is for me. I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is for me among those who help me. Therefore, I will look with satisfaction on those who hate me. The fact that the Lord was for him, he realized, like Paul, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God has purposed my good, who can possibly stand in the way of that coming to pass? Can anybody thwart God's good purposes for you or for me? Can anybody thwart or bring to to not God's plans? If God has planned and purposed good, if the Lord is for me, what can man do? In the midst of all of this distress and affliction, the psalmist remembers, God has purposed my good, and He has planned my good. He has foreordained, as it were, all the good that is going to come to me. And I know that the end of this is good, because He has promised that. I know that there is heaven. I know that there is His blessing. I know that there is grace. And if that is what God has planned for me, then what, what do I need to fear from men, from any man? And if man cannot purpose, if man cannot thwart God's good purposes for me, then neither can man deliver me from distress or affliction. That's verse 8. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It's better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. Two parallel statements, and by referring to man in the first one and princes in the second one, uh, the psalmist sort of brackets all of humanity. It's better to trust in the Lord than to trust in man. And by that, he's referring to the lowest of men. Just men in general. Just common man. Be it prince or be it pauper. But then on the other end of the bracket, he talks about princes. It's better to trust in the Lord than to trust in princes. Whether you are a prince... Or a pauper, it is better to trust in the Lord than to trust in the pauper or the prince. Whoever it is that he's trusting in, he's still a man, right? Even the best of men are men at best. And even the best of men, and even the rulers among us, those who rule us, the men in the highest positions of power and authority and influence and prosperity, even they are just men. And they are as unreliable as every other man. And I would argue, in most cases, those who rule us are more unreliable than any other men. They are more unreliable, and they are just men. And cursed is the man or the woman who trusts in man to be his deliverance. If God has purposed you good, then no man can stand against it. And listen, if God has appointed you an affliction or a trial, you are a fool to trust in men to deliver you from that. Because men cannot thwart God's purposes for good, and men cannot thwart God's plans in allowing you to go through distress. Man can do nothing to change the situation for the good or for the better. And so it is folly and foolishness. It is the worst of foolishness to put your trust in men. And the psalmist knew this. Listen, this is one of the things that we learn when we go through affliction. We learn to trust God. Do you trust God more in affliction or in good times? The reality is that in the good times, apart from affliction or distress or bad times, we don't instinctively trust God. We tend to forget Him. And God knows that. One of the benefits and the blessings of affliction is, is that we are, are we are forced to turn to God and to call out to Him for deliverance from them. And if God did not allow that, we would tend to forget Him, not to praise Him, because we tend to become very self-sufficient when things are very good for us. Now look at verse 10. All the nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me. Yes, they surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. In the name of the Lord, I will surely cut them off. Notice. Three times the psalmist talks about cutting off his enemies, cutting off those who surrounded him. And that it, it is a violent imagery of being defeated, cutting them off, destroying them, defeating them. That's the imagery that's being employed. I'm not right now going to deal with the appropriateness of, of these types of statements. You will read these all the times in the psalms. The psalms are filled with what we call imprecatory elements. That is, calls for or trusts in God to destroy one's enemies, and to execute vengeance. and I taught a series of lessons on this, and they're online if you want to go find out, okay, what do we do with the imprecatory psalms? I would recommend them to you if you sort of wrestle with how do we how do we read things like this? Here we have somebody talking about cutting off his enemies. what How is that applicable to us? what how do we how do we reconcile that with what we read in scripture? And I want to deal with the appropriateness of that right now, but here's what I want you to I want you to see. This is not a call or a desire of the psalmist to execute personal vengeance. He says three times, in the name of the Lord, I will cut them off. And if if this is David writing this, he is writing from the perspective of being a king. If this is someone writing about David and his situation, then they are writing about David and his experience as a king. And as king of God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, it was entirely appropriate for the king to talk about God using him as an instrument of God's justice and God's deliverance and God's vengeance and thus blessing for the whole nation. Because see, anybody that afflicted or opposed David, opposed and afflicted the whole nation. And any deliverance of David as their king would be a deliverance of the whole nation. And any grace shown to David would be grace shown to the whole nation. So it would be appropriate for David or from any other king to speak of himself being the instrument of God's deliverance and God's justice upon those who opposed God, opposed his people, and opposed his truth. And that's what I think is going on here. He is saying, in the name of the Lord, God will use me as his instrument to deliver myself, that's appropriate, and also to deliver the nation, who in opposing David or their king, would also be opposing the entire nation. Now verse 13. You pushed me violently so that I was falling. And the psalmist seems to have in mind here, and in a particular individual, and he doesn't seem to be referring to God. You pushed me violently so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. And he's contrasting whoever was pushing him. And the idea is of thrusting, like somebody poking or thrusting at him, much like the bees that are mentioned back in verse 12. Look at verse 12. They surrounded me. That is, those who surrounded the psalmist surrounded him like bees. They surrounded me like bees. They were extinguished as a fire of thorns. How annoying is it to be surrounded by a swarm of bees? Very annoying. And you would feel helpless because a swarm of bees is almost impossible to fight against. Because they dart back and forth and they sting you and they come at you from every angle. That's how the psalmist felt like everything, all of the hostility and oppression and opposition was coming against him. Like a swarm of bees. How do you, how do you deal with that? They sting me here, I turn around, they sting me there and they sting me in the same place and they back and forth and you can't get rid of any of them. Almost overwhelmed by that. But look at the next imagery. They were extinguished like a thorn, like a fire of thorn bushes. You've put thorn bushes onto a fire and it will crackle and produce a lot of heat and a lot of light and a lot of sound for a very short period of time. That is how the psalmist came to view his affliction. It was as short as it was sharp. It was intense, it was painful, but in the end, it was short-lived. And the psalmist says, what, what was it like? It was like thorn bushes on a fire. Lots of noise, lots of heat, lots of light, and then phoom, a handful of ashes, that's all that's left. And oftentimes, that's how we view, on the other side of affliction, that's how we view the affliction that God brings into our lives. In the midst of it, it feels like we are in the midst of the flames of hell itself. But then you get on the other side of it and you realize, you know what, God was with me through that whole thing. He delivered me through this. He taught me through this. And on the other side of it, what was it really that produced all of that? It was short-lived in the end. And it seemed intense at the moment. But it was short as it was sharp. It was just temporary. And what is left but just a few ashes. And the memory of the flash and a memory of the sight and a memory of the sound but really not the fury itself. And he was delivered from it. So verse thirteen is that person who was pushing him violently like the bees, attacking him from every angle, so that he was falling, but the Lord helped him. Verse 14, the Lord is my strength and my song, he's become my salvation. The psalmist understood that God in the midst of the in the midst of the affliction was his strength. At the end of the affliction was his song. And in the midst of the affliction, he relied upon God's strength, he learned something through it. So that when he came out of it, he delighted in giving God praise, which is probably the sentiment behind verses 1-4. to Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness endures forever. This is what he learned. He learned in the midst of the affliction that God is good, that His loving kindness endures forever. And when he came out the other side of it, he realized that God in the midst of all of that had been His strength. And so now God is His song. He is His salvation. Verse 15, the sound of joyful shouting and salvation is in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. And by the way, where is the song of joyful shouting? It's in the tents of the righteous. This is not, this type of deliverance and this type of blessing, this type of strength and salvation is not something experienced by the unrighteous, by the unsaved. These are the people who know God. God is for those who are His. God is opposed to and against the proud and those who are not His. So it is the righteous and then in the tents of the righteous where God is rejoiced in and where there is joyful shouting These are the people who experience the type of deliverance that the psalmist is describing. Verse 15, the right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord is exalted. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I will not die but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. This is how the psalmist, after the affliction, viewed the afflictions that came into his life. It was the discipline of the Lord. Who was it that opposed him? It was all of his enemies, whoever they were, whether it was Saul and his household, uh, or his friends that lifted up a heel against him, or his betrayers, or his family members, whoever it was that the psalmist is here describing, they opposed him. But ultimately, he sees this as the discipline of God in his life. You, Lord, disciplined me through what? Through all of the affliction that he has been describing. Being surrounded, and being hunted, and being hated. All of that was the hand of God disciplining him. Discipline of the Lord is never intended for our destruction, always for our instruction. And the psalmist is learning through the discipline the instruction of the Lord. So you discipline me. Verse 18, the Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. And sometimes when you're being spanked, you feel like you're going to die, but ultimately you're not going to die. And sometimes when the Lord is disciplining you and taking you through something, you feel like death is imminent. You feel like you're being given over to death. But ultimately the psalmist recognized, I I, I didn't die. Was it tough? Yeah, it was tough. Was there adversity? It was horrible. Did I like it? Not a bit, but I didn't die. Because the Lord did not intend to deliver me over to death through this. The Lord intended to discipline me and teach me more about Himself so that the psalmist might say the Lord is good and His loving kindness endures everlastingly, forevermore. Verse 19, open to me the gates of righteousness. Now he sees himself as one who must enter into the presence of God. Open to me the gates of righteousness. I shall enter through them. I shall give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous will enter through it. Who enters through the gates of righteousness? Only the righteous. Ultimately, if this is speaking of the temple, then the psalmist has in mind going into the temple to praise God, or if he's speaking of the city of Jerusalem, or the new Jerusalem, or whether he is looking forward to just being into God's presence, he views this coming in to offer God praise as entering through a gate, which is the gate of the Lord through which only the righteous can enter. And the psalmist is confident enough in his own righteousness because of what God has done, it's God's righteousness that he has, To declare, open to me the gates of righteousness so that I, as one who is righteous, not by my own works, but by God's doing and His imputation, I may enter in and give God praise. So he wants to enter in to give God thanks. And he is among all the righteous who do that. Verse 21, I shall give thanks to you for you have answered me and you have become my salvation. All of this the psalmist has learned through the affliction and adversity. What's the purpose or the point of affliction and adversity in the life of the believer? Everything you have just read. To understand and to know the salvation of God, that it is only temporary, that God is the one who gives us strength, and God is the one who becomes our song, and to see God save his people in the midst of affliction and adversity, that's one of the precious jewels of affliction and suffering in the life of a believer. Now up to this point, the psalmist, the psalm has been all about the adversity experienced by this one individual, be it David or be it some other person writing on behalf of David, If it is David who is writing this, or if the author of this has in mind David, then he is speaking in verse 22 of David as well. Look at verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You and I, when we read that, we think of the Lord Jesus Christ, because of all the quotations that I gave you at the beginning. But ultimately, who is verse 22 referring to? Ultimately, verse 22, the Jews would have understood this, and I would agree with this, Verse 22 is referring to, I think, David. He was God's choice cornerstone for the nation. Was David a rejected man? Yeah, he was. He was rejected by Saul, rejected by Saul's household. He was the least of his family. He was the least of his brothers, rejected by his brothers. David was a small man. David was an insignificant player. But God chose him and chose on David to build a nation, a prosperous nation, and a powerful nation. And then not only that, in, you can see it in Psalm 89 and in First and Second Samuel, God chose to make a covenant with David through which He would bless all the nations. So He would bless David. He would bless David's house. He would give David a descendant. He would establish his kingdom, set over his kingdom that descendant who would rule and reign forevermore on the throne of David. Those were all the blessings and promises given to David. David was the chief cornerstone. He was the man through whom God would bless the entire nation of Israel and ultimately through the nation of Israel to bless all the nations. David is at the center of that, but he was a man who was rejected. But when David was made king, not by man's doing, but by God's choice, because Saul was not God's choice for king, Saul pleased the people. And how did that work out? But David was God's choice. David was a man after God's own heart. David was God's anointed. He was the chief cornerstone, but he was rejected. Verse 33, this is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Who would have chosen David? Only God would have chosen David, but God chose David. And that one who was rejected by men was chosen by God and established by God as the chief cornerstone, and for that we give God thanks. It is marvelous in our eyes. Verse 23, this is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. We will rejoice and be glad in it. What day are they talking about? Probably there are a reference to the coronation of David, the establishment of that kingdom, maybe the giving of the covenant. They're looking forward to this. They see David as the cornerstone, rejected by men, chosen by God. It's marvelous to us. Now he is king. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice in this day. Look how God has blessed the nation through David, the chief cornerstone. Now you realize that Jesus Christ is ultimately the ultimate fulfillment in even a greater sense than David was. Was Jesus rejected? He was rejected by men, rejected by the Jewish leadership. But Jesus Christ was God's cornerstone. And he is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone. He has built the church upon that. Christ is the cornerstone of that. He ultimately fulfills this in a way that David never could. Verse 24 or 25. This is the words that come off the lips of the people outside the city of Jerusalem while Jesus is riding in on the back of a donkey. Verse 25. O Lord, do save, we beseech you. O Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you. From the house of the Lord. That's quoted in in part or in full by all four of the gospel writers by the uh, uh, by the people. That's what they said. But you'll notice that it's a little bit different in the New Testament because they say Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the word Hosanna simply translated means save us. We pray. That's what Hosanna means. But you'll notice that verse 25 actually says that, O Lord, do save. We beseech you. So they are asking for God to save. And they are crying out for salvation. And the word Hosanna just means save us and save us now. And then they quote, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, as the people were gathered around the city of Jerusalem, during Passover, they were quoting one of the psalms that they would be singing all week long during the Passover week. The words of Psalm 18 were as familiar to them as any song that you have ever sung is familiar to you. They knew it, and they knew it by heart. And so they are asking God to save them, and they quote verses 25 and 26. Because they see in this one who is coming into Jerusalem, one who could fulfill all the expectation that they were expecting the son of David to fulfill. Verse 27, The Lord is God and He has given us light. Bind the festival sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. You are my God and I give thanks to you. You are my God, I extol you. Give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His loving kindness is everlasting. The psalm ends on the same note that it begins with a declaration of God's goodness. In the midst of all of this affliction, we trust in God to do what God has promised to do through His cornerstone. God has established a cornerstone, and they pray for prosperity and for blessing. Notice in verse 26 when they ask or verse 25, when they say, "O oh Lord, we beseech you, do send prosperity." They're not asking for personal riches because they're greedy. We want more money to send, spend on ourselves. That's not what they're asking for. What did the Jews expect the coming kingdom to bring? prosperity, alleviation of the curse. Jerusalem would be the center of the nations. All the nations would come up. They would worship. They would bow down. They would gather together around the Jewish Messiah who would reign and rule. It would be peace. It would be righteousness. It would be justice. It would be prosperity. It would be blessing like we have never, no nation has ever seen the type of blessing that they anticipated to be centered around their Messiah in Jerusalem. So when they pray, Lord, send us blessing, they're not saying, give us money because we want more money. They're not a televangelist. That's not what they're asking for. What they are asking for is, Lord, bring in the blessing of the kingdom. And this prosperity was not individual prosperity, though it would result in that. It was prosperity through the cornerstone, to the nation through the cornerstone, and to all nations through that nation. It was a worldwide blessing. That's what they're praying for. When you and I pray, Lord Jesus, come quickly, and we long to see the Lord Jesus return, we are praying the same thing. Send us prosperity. What do we want? We want blessing. That's what we want. I want the curse to be lifted. I want sin brought to an end. I want all of this destruction to end. I want God's people to be blessed. I want God's church to be blessed. What I want and desire and long for is for the curse to be lifted and for there to be, in a true biblical sense, prosperity. But that's just not financial riches. That is the blessing of the kingdom. When we long for and look forward to the kingdom, we are longing for and look forward to prosperity, not personal riches so that we can hoard them, but the blessing of God to all people and all nations, that the nations may be glad in him. That's the prosperity that is described there. Now we get to the end of the psalm, and you recognize, I think, very quickly that there's more than just one sermon there, right? If we did to Psalm 118, what we're doing to John 12, it would take us quite a ways to go through that, because there is a lot that can be gleaned there, but I hope you capture sort of the essence of that psalm. Let me let me bring this back to John 12 and the triumphal entry with just three quick three quick connections. First of all, you can see there is a connection here to the Passover. You can see the language of Passover being used here, the the oppression, the bondage being brought out into a a wide open spot. Um, The Jews, when they would read or sing Psalm 118, they would see in Psalm 118 not just the experience of one person, but a microcosm of the experience of the entire nation. They saw this through the eyes of one individual, but they saw in this one individual... The story of their entire nation being played out in bondage, under oppression. The nations are against us. But God brings us out and delivers us out of the affliction, be it Egypt or whatever it is, out of that affliction, God delivers us from that and brings us into a wide open spot, like the promised land. God has delivered us from that. And all of the other psalms in the Hallel Psalms speak of God delivering them and preserving them and bringing them into His promised land. So they saw in Psalm 118 a microcosm, as it were, of the experience of the whole nation. And they connected all of that to the Passover and what they recognized and celebrated at Passover time. Second, there is a connection here to David and his kingdom. Certainly the Jews understood that, that David would be this chief cornerstone who was rejected by men and yet chosen by God, and through whom God would send the blessing or or bring blessing to the nation of Israel and to all nations. Uh, They saw in the language of this psalm a, a description basically of the establishment of David's kingdom. That is why the Jews in John 12, when Jesus rode into Jerusalem, that's why they were quoting Psalm 118. What were they wanting? They were wanting a king. They were wanting the kingdom to be established. And they were longing for that and the prosperity. And here they saw in this man who could raise the dead, walk on water, feed the multitudes, heal the sick. They saw in him the potential fulfillment of all of that. And so they are praying and asking God to come and save them, and to establish that kingdom. And they see in Psalm 118 the story of David being chosen, being anointed, being placed as king and an item of blessing. And then they see in Jesus the potential of having all of that again. They saw in Psalm 118 the story of David, and it is connected to David and to his kingdom and the blessings that God would bring through the one who would ultimately come from David, who would be the blessing to the entire nation. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The third connection to John 12, as you see obviously here, the connection to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the fulfillment of all of this. He is the fulfillment of everything. I shouldn't say everything. He is the fulfillment of so much in this psalm. He was opposed. He was hated. He was rejected, surrounded by the nations. He's the chief cornerstone. He's the one who comes in the name of the Lord. He ultimately will bring his people prosperity. He ultimately is the one who delivers them. He has brought us into a large place. Almost every other verse has a phrase in there that in some way is fulfilled ultimately in in a much richer sense in the Lord Jesus Christ than this psalmist ever knew or experienced. So when the people are shouting out around Jesus at the on Palm Sunday, Hosanna, son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our Father David. What were they crying out? He's our King. That's what they were saying. He's the one who fulfills this. He's the one who would come in the name of the Lord and bring us prosperity. He's the one who will establish this kingdom. He is the one that David anticipated. He's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. He's the fulfillment of all the promises to David and the prophets. That's what they believed about him. And here's here's the catch. What they were saying about Jesus, his person, is absolutely true. What they had wrong was the timing of what he came to do. Everything they said about him was absolutely true. He is the king. He is the son of David. He will rule. He will be the instrument and has been the instrument of blessing through the nation of Israel, to all the nations of the world, and ultimately in the future will be even more so. He's the fulfillment of all of that. But they got the timing wrong. He didn't come to set up a kingdom his first time. He came to not set up a kingdom, but to bring salvation and atonement and the salvation that this psalmist recognized uh, that he needed. And this psalmist experienced that salvation. So, do we look forward to and long for the return of Christ? We do. Do we look forward to and long for the, the fulfillment of all that has been promised here. Yes, everything that God has said to the nation of Israel, I believe, will be fulfilled. He keeps His Word. He is true. And He keeps His Word. And we will experience these things and we will look forward to these things because God is good and His loving kindness is everlasting and He always keeps His Word. That's Psalm 118. Let's pray together. Our Father, we are grateful to You for all the blessings that You have poured out upon us. And each blessing that we receive creates within us a hunger and a desire to know more and to experience more. And so it is appropriate for us to pray for your blessings to fall not only upon us, but upon your church, upon your people, upon this world and through to the nations. We know that ultimately that will happen only in and through Christ. We love Him. We thank you for Him. We thank you that He is our King. And it is our, our joy to bow the knee and to acknowledge your sovereignty, your grace, and the kingship of Christ. We thank you that He has won our hearts. We thank you that you have changed our hearts to love him and to see in him everything that is precious and everything that is desirable to us. Thank you for a salvation which is so rich and so free. We thank you that we can trust you because you will bring to pass all that you have promised. For you are good and your loving kindness is everlasting. We say that with joy and we say it with gladness. Thank you for teaching us that. In Christ's name, amen.